Well, beloved listeners, a couple of days ago I was having a chat with our old friend Janus Varoufakis about his new book, Techno-Feudalism, and in that context the term Luddite came up. These days uh, the term is used to describe someone who's, well, stubbornly resistant to new technologies, perhaps even a little backward. So that's why I have long worn the term, applied it to myself and worn it as a badge of honour, but it's probably time, as Janus was emphatically suggesting, that we looked at the term Luddite and considered what it actually means. Well, it all dates back to the early 19th century when a group of textile workers in England formed a guerrilla movement rising up against the new factory machines that were destroying their livelihoods. Brian Merchant is an author and technology columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and his new book is called Blood in the Machine. And it tells the true story of when machines first, well, first came for human jobs, a moment which, of course, is eerily pertinent to the current concerns about AI. Brian, welcome to our little wireless program. What was your understanding of the term Luddite before you embarked on the book? Uh, yeah, before I embarked on the book, it, my understanding of the term Luddite was probably just like everyone else's, uh, which is, if you've heard the term, then it's this derogatory epithet that means, uh, yeah, backwards looking or somebody who's afraid of technology or has a reactionary sort of stance towards technology. They hate it and they just want nothing to do with it. Um, and as I soon discovered, diving into the research for this book, that was all wrong. How many Luddites were there? Do we have a census? It's really hard to say, um, partly because it's a little bit up in the air uh, as to who counts as a Luddite. Um, so the most famous and probably most central uh, Luddites were those who actually engaged in these nightly raids um, where they would send a letter to a factory owner and uh, using the, the name Ned Ludd, which was uh, an, an apocryphal kind of made up name that like, like Robin Hood uh, and they would uh, threaten the factory owner, say, we know you've got a couple hundred of those automating machinery and, you know, they'd use the terms of the day. Uh, uh, take them down. They're stealing our bread. We have 1,000 brothers and sisters who can't eat anymore. And if the factory owner wouldn't comply, then the Luddites were uh, first and foremost those men, those cloth workers, those tradesmen who would infiltrate the factory, uh, sneak in, and then smash the machines that were uh, automating that work. But you could also apply to the, the term to people who joined them in the streets in, in protests in broad daylight, people who used it as an organizing tool, and people who sort of embraced the term more broadly. It was very popular at the time, so it was almost a cultural phenomenon as well as a, as a labor movement. And we're not talking a sub-proletariat, we're talking about highly skilled, respected, middle-class workers. By and large, those are the those are who led the the movement. Although it did encompass a wide variety of uh, of workers, so everyone from sort of impoverished uh, migrant workers who really were sort of 
was you know working for a daily wage and who's who had seen those wages fall i mean they were skilled by and large skilled weavers skilled cloth finishers knitters um and there were you know it it really did run the gamut so there were uh, there were cloth workers who were kind of at the top of the trade, and those are the finishers or the croppers uh, who did sort of occupy more of like a labor aristocracy, it's been called. But you did, down at the bottom, you had kind of those who were earning paycheck to paycheck uh, and 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 could no longer get by who really were quite desperate. So it did run the gamut. You make the point that you could say there were some of the original work-from-home workers uh, and that often the whole family was involved in the process. Yeah, they really were. I mean, the term cottage industry comes from uh, the nature of the trade in in sort of the Midlands uh, of England, in in, in Nottingham, in in Manchester, and in in Yorkshire. Um, so it was very much a, a family affair. Uh, in a lot of cases, you know, you would have workers uh, working at home. Uh, maybe they would, uh, they would, if they were prosper enough, prosperous enough, they would have a journeyman weaver uh, come join. You might have a couple looms in a cottage, um, but the the bottom line is that these workers had a lot of uh, agency as, as well as a lot of pride in their work, so they could. Uh, they could stop when they wanted to. They could sing songs as a family to pass the time. They could go take walks in the garden. And if you're in a small shop with other workers, then there's a real sense of camaraderie. It was very collegial. Um, it was quite different than the factory system that was emerging um, in that early period of the Industrial Revolution in which the Luddites uh, were protesting just as much as any of the machinery. You know, they saw this prospect of having to sit and work in a dark building that was six stories high, uh, you know, being told what to do every day and, you know, working around the clock. And it really did seem seem miserable. So they were protesting uh, that shift uh, to more organized, more subordinated labor, just like, you know, uh, today, we at least here in the States, we have a uh, a lot of workers who got used to working at home, working remotely, and now all the managers are saying, well, time to come back to the office, and there's a real resistance to doing so. So you can kind of imagine the parallels, uh, especially among a group of workers who had never known anything else. They'd only known the, the the pleasures and comforts of working at home. And so being forced into the factory for the first time uh, was a big motivating factor to kind of stand up and fight back. My guest is uh, Brian Merchant, tech journalist and author of Blood in the Machine, the origins of the rebellion against big tech. Let's go back to the machines in question. Tell me about the power loom. Yeah, the power loom is interesting. It was one of the machines that was perhaps most uh, despised, or as they put it in, in the terminology of the day, it was uh, the obnoxious machinery because it was expressly put towards the use of, of automating the job of weaving, which at the time um, in the early 1800s uh, was, a, was a vast uh, occupation. There were uh, hundreds of thousands of, of weavers working in, in the cotton trades, especially, which was booming at the time. Um, so the prospect of automating that uh, meant that 
that was a lot of jobs on the line in a trade that was already seeing depressed wages. Um, it was invented by Edmund Cartwright, who, uh, according to his telling, he kind of did it on a lark because he had visited Richard Arkwright, another major uh, sort of early tech titan, as I call it in the book, um, and sort of was inspired just to see if he could do it. Um, and eventually the invention was uh, improved and perfected to the point where it could be used on uh, mass, but one interesting thing is that when the Luddites uh, finally rose up, there were not even all that many power looms in existence. It wasn't actually displacing uh, a ton of jobs. You could think of it almost like AI today, where there's a lot of talk about generative AI and what's it going to do? Is it going to impact the uh, you know the creative sectors? Is it going to do writing? Is it going to do artwork? Is it going to produce all of these things that humans produce right now? We just don't know, but it's not really eliminating large swaths of jobs yet. But the Luddites knew exactly to which use that the power loom was going to be put. And so it was almost a symbolic opposition. Um, they knew that it was sort of synonymous with the factory because it enabled this division of labor and it enabled a uh, factory owner or an industrialist to, uh, to, to increase his profit margins at their expense. So they they mobilized uh, to to oppose it uh, before it kind of came on the scene in a large way. Brian, I had not made the connection that you do that uh, this the new machines led to an explosion in child labor. Yeah, um, it's probably maybe the darkest uh, element of this first uh, indu- you know technological revolution uh, is that. You know, we we tend to think of it as an explosion of of machinery, of of, of new machinery, and that's partly true. Uh, but just as important was the new factory owners uh, still needed people to run those machines. There was more of them uh, there's to run, uh, but you still needed just as many, uh, if not more people to tend to them to make sure that they continued running. And you no longer needed a skilled tradesmen or craftsmen, uh, the sort that the Luddites would be, you could have a child uh, overseeing the operation of these machines and doing key uh, jobs like picking little pieces of clothing out of the spinning gears of these machines so that they don't get jammed up. And it really did be you know beget this boom in 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 child labor and it was quite formalized uh there were pipelines from orphanages in the major population centers in the cities where magistrates from the industrial towns would work with the orphanages and the management of these orphanages to sort of secure these pipelines so that they could get a steady flow of child labor people that they didn't have to pay at all um in many cases it was indentured servitude mostly i follow Robert Blinko, who is the inspiration for perhaps the most famous orphan of all time, Oliver Twist, um, his story was something of a sensation in its day when when his memoirs were published as part of the sort of anti-child child labor movement. Um, but he was just subjected to unimaginable abuses just when he was when a very young boy. You know, these are children, seven, eight, nine years old. Uh, risking their life and limb, being abused by overseers, no accountability. Their humanity just disappears in the face of this new machinery. I'd like to now go back to the gentleman you mentioned earlier, Ned Ludd. Tell us about this uh, mythical 
person. Yeah. So Ned Ludd really appears for the first time in written history uh, in the early months of the Luddite uprising in, um, I believe it's December 1811. Um, And he appears is sort of an origin story that was uh, written about uh, for one of the Nottingham papers. And there's some debate as to the the provenance of, of, of Ned Ludd and whether he was uh, in fact kind of really existed and was a was an apprentice cloth weaver, which is how the story goes. He was an apprentice weaver who was working uh, for a master who thought he wasn't being productive enough, thought he was being lazy. So he went to the magistrate and had him whipped. And Ned picked up a hammer and smashed his master's machine and then fled into Nottingham Forest. Um, chances so are... Isn't that of- interesting? You mentioned that he was had a sort of a Robin Hood quality and they yeah. shared the forest. Yep, they did. I mean, say them back to back, Ned Ludd, Robin Hood, Ned Ludd, Robin Hood. You can kind of hear the phonetic similarities. And this is a region that had a culture of, of dissent. So it's it stands to reason that it, the folks there remembered or knew just how powerful uh, a legend like Robin Hood could be. And they made up their own to to symbolize this, this movement that was opposing um, exploitative machinery. And of course, we're talking of the time of the French Revolution. Yeah, the French Revolution is the backdrop to a lot of this. Um, you know, 1789 um, and the 1790s in England were a time that was re- animated with the prospect of reform. Um, the prospect of, of democracy was kind of in the air. There was a lot of hope uh, in that period before a lot of that was uh, clamped down on and crushed with draconian laws, one of which was that it became illegal to form a combination. So or a union as we know it today. So workers could not organize to try to ask for better treatment. Um, A lot of speech was outlawed. A lot of levers available to the to the to the public were were sort of uh, destroyed then, and you know that is undergirding a lot of what's going on with the Luddites. Some of whom are quite interested in a revolutionary project. Um, most of them are concerned foremost with their economic conditions and the rise of the factory system. But there is an undercurrent that gets seized on um, that that feeds directly into the reform movement uh, that would take precedence in coming years. Long-term listeners to this little wireless program will recall that a a couple of Luddites were transported to Australia. Now, I have to ask you this. What was the public reaction to these these guerrilla warriors? They, uh, They were quite popular, were they not? They were heroes, just like Robin Hood. In the day, they were cheered as they as they went about their campaigns and their daring raids they were written about in the papers people would read about them uh people would cheer them on uh they gave a lot of people hope uh because they didn't like the rise of the factory system either they saw that inequality was rampant they saw how factories and industrialization were in a lot of cases blighting the landscapes they lived in. They saw some people getting very rich while other people were suffering a great deal. So here was this crew of 
of sort of daring rebels who were taking matters into their own hands and, and wielding a hammer. And they had this backstory that we discussed. Um, and it was quite exciting and it gave people something to cheer for. Um, you know, eventually the Luddites go too far in, in, in a lot of people's eyes when they're, when they're pressed and there's a, um, there's an incident that turns public opinion against them. Um, but for a time, they were cheered just like Robin Hood. So you've described the rise of the movement and now the fall. Yeah. Well, the state isn't going to let the Luddites win. Uh, it's a parliament that has been described as fiercely conservative at the time and that they were completely intolerant of any uh, trade regulations. They said no to the minimum wage. They said no to any kind of welfare. They basically left the Luddites, even when they were starving, um, to their own devices. They they left them in a ditch to die, as one historian kind of put it, tongue darkly in cheek. Um, so instead, the crown amasses the troops and they send a force to occupy the industrial districts that is as large or larger than any in England's history. So we're talking tens of thousands of troops at the at the highest point that are occupying these industrial lands sort of put in service of combating the Luddites or guarding the factories for the industrialists. Um, and eventually there's just too much to bear. The crown also makes it a, a crime punishable by death to break a machine. They uh, they, they make it a, a capital offense. Um, and eventually, Luddites are captured. Dozens are hung in a show trial at York. There are some truly violent uh, clashes between the British state and, and Luddite rioters, especially in Manchester, where conditions were deteriorating so fast. Um, and eventually, the state crushes the Luddite rebellion, um, and they are kind of left with this derogatory term. Brian, it's time to reclaim the word, isn't it? I sure think so. I think part of the mission of this book is to rehabilitate the image of the Luddites as people that were not backwards looking, that were not deluded, that were in fact technologists themselves. They use this technology every day, and that's why they understood better than anyone what it would mean if it was used in a way that was oppositional to their interests. They only wanted to destroy or to eliminate or to stop the machinery that was hurtful to commonality, as they put it. They had no problem with machinery that would benefit all, that they could get a, a share of the gains from, that wouldn't allow people to starve. And in fact, they spent years and years appealing to Parliament saying, hey, what if we tried this? And you see a lot of the same kind of policy proposals that we see today. What if we tax some of the excess cloth that machines can produce that we can't, and then use that as a buffer to sort of uh, help ease the transition for unemployed workers? That was put away. What if we just had a minimum wage? What if we sort of uh, instituted a schedule that we could uh, delay machinery for now until times weren't so bad? Um, they had a lot of ideas in the air, but they were all just pushed away. And so Luddism, what became best known as Luddism, uh, was a tactic of last resort. Today, we do not need to use that tactic of last resort, but we can recognize that Luddism is a way of approaching exploitative technologies and saying no. 
Brian, you were great, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It was fun. And thank you for your brilliant book. Brian's uh, new book is called uh, Blood in the Machine and it's published by Hachette. Brian Merchant's uh, book has just been published in the US and is now available for pre-order here in Australia. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.